When you delete a file from your computer, that file is probably not quite as deleted as you might think it is. There's an entire industry predicated on recovering data that was intentionally or unintentionally trashed on a user's desktop or on their laptop, their smartphone, their tablet, or any other device with a hard drive and an operating system, which is pretty much all of them these days. The reason these files can often be recovered even after we put them in the trash and empty the trash and seemingly eliminate them from our lives, from existence, is that hard drives do not work the way that most people suspect they do. When you delete a file from a hard drive, it pretty much just moves that file to another part of the drive that is more or less inaccessible to the user. And the idea is that someday, if and when the drive runs out of free space, it begins to overwrite that space that is currently filled with all the stuff that you deleted. It shows up as being free if you ask the operating system, but there's a bunch of trash there just waiting to be overwritten by new data eventually. And that's what these file recovery services take advantage of. They go looking in those unindexed portions of your hard drive, almost like they were searching through parts of an old library that was declared off-limits years ago. There's no information in the card catalog saying anything about books back in that derelict old part of the building, but it's actually where all the discarded books are kept. And if you search those supposedly empty shelves, you might stumble across something you thought was gone, that by all indications, by all evidence available in the front of the building, was gone. Things that you thought were deleted when in fact they were just made mostly inaccessible to the casual peruser. This problem can be partially alleviated by utilizing a more thorough deletion method. The usual more complete and reliable method for killing your unwanted files is overwriting them. And optimally, this means overwriting the entire hard drive so that you avoid that unfortunate, aforementioned, unlisted but still there scenario. You want to overwrite the whole thing, so even those seemingly empty but not actually empty spaces are overwritten. What overwrite means, in this context, is blasting that hard drive space with bajillions of zeros, or randomly garbled gibberish. This fills up the hard drive to capacity with nonsense data, which means it will fill up not just the space that you see, but also all of those nooks and crannies in the back, where deleted information is usually tucked away. This hard drive can then be used again in the future, and ostensibly more safely, because anything that is stored there but not indexed in the hidden portions of the hard drive will just be that set of zeros and gibberish that you plastered across the thing while overriding it. So there will still be information in that supposedly vacant hard drive space, but it won't be information that you care about. But unfortunately, Information is not so easily eliminated from existence, even if you use a generally reliable overwrite method. With the right software and know-how, someone who wants to see that data could potentially backtrack your overwrite process. If they know the ins and outs of your operating system and the overwrite methods that are used by that OS, they could take your freshly garbled hard drive and apply a reverse filter to it which essentially unwrites 
the overwrite, applying the same series of zeros or supposedly random data, but in reverse. Because of this potentiality, many operating systems allow you to apply more than one pass of zeros or trash data to overwrite the drive. I'm pretty sure the last time I replaced my computer and got rid of the old one, my operating system allowed me to do three passes over the hard drive, which took over an hour. The Pentagon purportedly has a seven-pass system that they use on their old hardware to make it as difficult as possible for would-be file recovery spies to peek at their documents after they've junked their old machines to replace them with new ones. At the moment, the most secure and reliable method of data deletion seems to be what is called crypto-shredding, which involves using a high level of cryptographic encryption, the kind that would require decades or centuries of number crunching by even the fastest computers available today, if you wanted to brute force hack your way into it, and then destroying the cryptographic code that allows this information to be decrypted, either by physically destroying, crushing, burning the hard drive that contains that code, or by committing it to some more destroyable medium to begin with, like paper, which can then be burned after using it to lock up that other data, encrypting it. Of course, it's also possible to just destroy the hardware containing the data that you want to delete to begin with, but this isn't always a viable option for many reasons. You may not want to torch your expensive computer just to be on the safe side when it comes to those embarrassing photos that you took to make sure that they're deleted for good. Now, it's also worth noting that although these methods can lead to the deletion, or de facto deletion, of files on a hard drive, if the device in question is connected to the internet, the chances that those files have gotten out onto other hard drives scattered around the world is not zero, meaning you can throw your smartphone into the sun and that still won't delete those embarrassing photos permanently. Not if the files have touched the cloud, have been attached to an email, have been synced to another device, have been posted on social media, or one of the other countless, often passive ways our data are shared with the world today. What I want to talk about today is that latter issue, that it's nearly impossible to reliably delete things from the internet. And that, in fact, there are powerful forces at work that try very hard to ensure that this is the case. But despite that reality, these forces in the very near future may be required to allow for some kind of permanent deletion if they are going to continue to wield the power that they currently wield and if they are going to continue to operate within the letter of the law. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start from today comes from the Columbia Journalism Review, and it's entitled, Google Seeks to Limit Right to Be Forgotten by Claiming It's Journalistic. This piece addresses a minor drama playing out in the UK right now, where two businessmen who have been convicted of white-collar crimes are attempting to force Google to delist URLs, web addresses, from their search engine, which contain news articles that reference their convictions. 
Now, in response to these requests, Google has said, essentially, no way, dudes. This is news. This is important information. And although it's a bummer that having it out there makes you uncomfortable, your preferences and comfort in this regard do not supersede the public's right to be aware of the facts. And those facts include your convictions. Now, in the EU, there was a 2014 ruling that established the right of individuals to have information about them delisted from search engines if certain conditions are met. But that ruling included an exception for sites that index journalistic content. So although the BBC technically has a search engine on their website to display their archive and make it searchable, that search engine would not be impacted by this ruling because it's presented by a journalistic entity. To counter the lawsuits from these two white-collar criminals, Google is basically claiming that they are acting as a journalistic entity in this case, presenting important news to the world, and clamping down on their ability to do so would not be in the public interest, even if it would make these two guys' lives a little easier. Part of why this is such a remarkable case is that in the past, Google and many other online platforms, including Facebook, have gone to great lengths to avoid being labeled as journalistic entities or even as media companies. By wearing the mantle of tech company, they've been able to dodge many of the regulatory issues surrounding the content on their platforms, including illegal content like pirated media and certain types of pornography but also issues surrounding hate speech and violence that's been induced by YouTubers. They have self-regulated policies in place around these sorts of things, but they are not heavily enforced and watchdogged by the law. Because they've been able to say, basically, yeah, I get it. Those are the rules for TV stations and newspapers and such, but we are not that. We're just providing the technology, the index, and all of these independent people and publishers they're providing the rest. Any fault with these sorts of issues should be attributed to them, not us. We are just the platform. This repositioning flies in the face of that typical stance. And it's something we're seeing, not just in this single case involving Google, but also across the board with tech companies large and small. Suddenly, as the spotlight turns toward them and their self-regulated behavior, both the public and governments are wondering if letting them have such free reign was a good idea after all. At the core of this white-collar criminal's suing Google case in the UK is the so-called right to be forgotten, which is a concept that has been around since the early 2000s, but only started being legislated in a serious way in 2012, when the European Commission leaked a version of what would eventually become the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, and which included a specific provision regarding the right to be forgotten. At the time, though, the main legal document addressing this topic was a 1995 directive called the Data Protection Directive, or DPD. The DPD stated, in brief, that individuals' personal data should be protected, and more specifically, people should be given notice when their data is being collected. Data should only be used for the indicated purposes and nothing else. Data should not be disclosed without the individual's consent. Data should be kept secure. Folks should be informed about who is collecting their data beyond those to whom they granted consent already. People should be allowed to access their data and make corrections where warranted. 
and citizens should have a means of holding accountable any entities who fail to live up to their end of this relationship. All of those points, I think, to most people who read them, except perhaps the companies who make their living off of people's data, but to everyone else, I think that sounds pretty good. And this was back in 1995 that this came into effect, and it helped shape a lot of what's happening in Europe in particular, but also in many non-European countries around the world today. But these guidelines were just that, guidelines. Non-binding, no punishment for non-compliance. Many companies adjusted their operations as a consequence of these guidelines, but because this regulation had no teeth, no enforcement, as the online world evolved, so did business-side perception of exactly how much they had to color within the lines when it came to collecting data. Now, the leaking of that perhaps binding future replacement for the DPD back in 2012 spurred some actual tangible action. Google, for instance, took the opportunity to try to get ahead of this thing and set up their own process and policy for dealing with this impending right-to-be-forgotten hullabaloo. They gave Europeans a website that they could go to where they could submit their information and provide some proof of identity and then have their claim, a desire to have something about themselves, removed from Google, addressed by a group of humans who worked at Google who would go through and figure out if these removals were legitimate, were justified. The results of that effort have been mixed, and Google is criticized about basically every decision that they make within this space. When they give in and remove listings for articles and Facebook postings and such, which contain embarrassing information about someone, they are criticized for giving in to personal desires over the public interest. And when they refuse to pull down listings, they are criticized for stomping all over the rights of the individual, for failing to take this person's wants or needs into consideration over the whims of the broader social order. Now, it should be noted that this approach to regulation, corporations trying to get ahead of things, to show that they can manage things on their own, set their own milestones and metrics, implement solutions that work without needing a prod, no carrot, no stick from the government. This is a pretty common thing. And it's happening now, too, across many different fronts, involving many different companies in many different countries. And part of why the pace has picked up recently is because of the forthcoming implementation of the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which, as I mentioned a moment ago, was part of what spurred this initial action from Google when Article 17, which is regarding the right to be forgotten in the GDPR, was leaked back in 2012. The GDPR goes a whole lot further than the DPD, both in scope, but also in that it has teeth. There are well-outlined consequences for companies and other entities that fail to live up to the guidelines that it imposes. And some of those consequences are of consequence. Companies in breach of the guidelines contained in this regulation can be fined up to 4% of their total annual global turnover, or 20 million euros, whichever is greater. And companies that are perhaps not in full breach, but simply don't have their records in order, allowing the enforcing authorities to check in on them and assess their adherence to these guidelines, they can be fined 2% of their total annual global turnover. According to a Goldman Sachs analysis, 
This means that Facebook could be fined about $1.6 billion if they are found to be not in compliance with the GDPR. And that means in Europe, but also possibly around the world, because the GDPR outlines how European citizens' data can be used, including how it's utilized outside the EU. So lacking that worldwide infrastructural shift would put them in a precarious position, as there's always the chance that some chunk of data would end up where it shouldn't be. Though on the other hand, it is worth noting that the same Goldman Sachs analysis indicated that due to these changes, and what these changes could mean for Facebook's data-based, mostly advertising-fueled business model, the company could stand to lose about 7% of what they currently make each year, totaling about $2.8 billion. So it could, potentially, at least in the short term, be cheaper for them to just remain in breach of the law, to continue to do things as they're doing things, and consider the payout, that 4% penalty under the GDPR, a discount on what they would otherwise suffer if they played by the rules. Now, it does seem, on the day I'm recording this at least, which is a situation that could change significantly by the time this episode comes out, so be aware of that. This is a fast-moving story. But at the moment, it seems as if Facebook's going to try to play nice with the GDPR, and that it is trying that Google in 2012 tactic of getting out in front of things and trying to own the regulation, Basically, they seem to be trying to install a lot of new limitations and data privacy features themselves before they have to, to show the governing bodies involved that they can be trusted and that they can install and implement these types of policies themselves. And so the politicians need not crack down on them too hard or even watch them too closely. They can be trusted. Facebook's stock has also crumbled in the past few weeks due to all of this attention and a series of revelations about its behavior and associations in elections and other vital societal functions around the world, pretty much since it became a dominant social network. So for the better part of a decade, this loss of perceived value may also color their perception about which price is the correct one to pay. Long term, it may make more sense to play by the rules, whatever those rules turn out to be, because being seen as a public villain is not doing very good things for their long-term business prospects. So in summary, the General Data Protection Regulation expands upon previous data protection rules while also providing fairly stern enforcement options. The GDPR will be going into effect on May 25th of 2018, so very soon after this podcast is first broadcast, and tech companies in particular are struggling to bring themselves into at least seeming compliance by that deadline, lest they face significant financial consequences. There are also gobs of reports about how this will affect a multitude of smaller businesses who currently may be tracking their website visitors or collecting data from customers in ways that are no longer allowed, but which they aren't aware conflict with this new way of doing things. We will see how that plays out, though I'm guessing that these smaller infringers will be given warnings in the year following implementation, and then perhaps small fines and other penalties will be levied until everyone falls into line. They are definitely not Facebook-scale potential breachers of this regulation. But at whatever scale, this change will influence the whole of the internet and business well outside of the official enforcement region of the European Union. 
in part because the EU is a huge economic entity, and if you want to do business within it, you need to have your ducks in a row. But also because the internet is a globe-spanning network, and most websites and networks don't build a site just to be accessed by people in a single country or economic zone. If you want to do business online, or produce content online, or participate in the online world at all, at any level, chances are this will impact you. Even if it just means that you will be seeing more notifications about how your data is used in the coming months. So with that groundwork laid, let's ask some questions and address them one by one as a means of further establishing and understanding the greater context of this story. How does this online deletion, or at least de-indexing of data thing, this right to be forgotten, fit into all the other social media and data-related craziness that has been dominating the headlines of late? Well, it's a safe bet that some of the more newsworthy scandals, like the Cambridge Analytica backlash that Facebook has been dealing with, and the YouTube issues, particularly those related to children and hate groups that Google has been working through, these things will weaken their position when it comes to shaping future legislation. It's difficult to say whether they will be successful or not in their plans to take the reins and determine their own path going forward, but if I had to guess... These scandals, as long as they are not completely knocked out by other scandals in other realms, completely unrelated to the online world and data and privacy and such, they could serve as a jumping off point for new political careers and old dusty ones that need to be polished up before election season. Meaning, we could see more of these stories become conflated and amplified because it would be politically expedient for some players in this space to make their name by coming down hard on Mark Zuckerberg and other tech giants, who more now than ever are suffering from very bad PR and are seen by many to be sociopathic money machines that are making society worse and destroying democratic institutions and causing us all to be idiots who are glued to our phones 24-7. Now, much of this is only tangentially related But there are tenuous connections that can be beefed up, and the cartoonish tech titan villains can be used for all kinds of purposes. I suspect that we will see more of that happening, and in some cases rightfully, in some cases just out of convenience or for profit. But it's primarily in that way that at least the public version of this story connects to all of these other stories. There are other interconnections with some of the same personalities involved, some of the same technologies involved. That's almost unavoidable. But the regulation side of this, in particular the right-to-be-forgotten side of this, it is a much bigger and also separate issue, even though it does connect at points to these other headline-grabbing stories. Now, should we have the right to be forgotten in the first place? Does this concept even make sense in the world that we have built and are building? This, to me, is a very good question, and there's no real right answer here, which can be frustrating. In fact, many people, myself included, will likely find themselves going back and forth on this issue, depending on their mood or who is being criticized most heavily in the news that day. Having our online activities tracked earns these big companies a whole lot of money, but it also allows them to provide us with tons of services that we enjoy for free or very cheaply. Some of those services would be easy to give up as a consumer, but others are immensely valuable and difficult to replicate. And if we were paying for them, they might be very expensive and only available to relatively few people. 
So lacking data about us, not only do these companies not have the same amount of income, which is required to provide these services to us cheaply or free, they also don't have the data that allows them to make predictions about what we will want and need or might enjoy. Disallowing these companies from tracking our location means that we can't use GPS within apps, no Google Maps, no searching for restaurants that happen to be nearby. Some of these functions would be salvageable if you were to enter the address where you're standing by hand, but that would be a lot less convenient than simply opening an app and it then telling you where you are. And in some cases, like when you're traveling in a foreign city and have no idea where you are, or even how to find out what your address is, these functions are not really replicable without them having that data. It's not something that you could build a workaround for. At the same time, being able to track you, your exact location in the moment, that could be super dangerous. Anyone with ill intent who gets their hands on your location history can figure out where you live, where you work, where you hang out at lunch, your usual running route. They can maybe figure out if you've had an abortion, if you're cheating on your spouse, all kinds of private, perhaps even blackmailable things. And most of the applications of this data have that two-sided nature. They are potentially immensely useful to the point where we've come to take them for granted, but they're also quite dangerous in certain circumstances. So when it comes to the right to be forgotten, to be able to remove yourself, or at least specific articles about yourself, from Google's search index, it's probably not difficult to imagine scenarios where that might be useful. You don't even need to imagine having a criminal record. What if someone writes something horrible and false about you? Says that you're a child molester. Says that your business ripped them off or hurt them or that you provide incredibly bad service. It might be nice to be able to remove those articles, if not from the websites where they've been published, from the vector through which most people are likely to find them, from the search engine that potential future partners or employers would use to check you out to see who you are and what you've done. At the same time, though, actual child molesters, actual business owners who gleefully take advantage of their customers, they probably think that getting rid of that evidence would be wonderful too. And it's very, very tricky to have one without the other. So the right to be forgotten is a double-edged sword. And at the moment, we're trying to figure out where the proper stance on that line, where the equilibrium point is for today's standards and needs. So how does something like this play out? What happens next? This is exactly what we're about to find out. And this is why it's a good idea to understand the broad concepts underpinning this discussion. Because there's going to be a lot of talk about the GDPR and similar regulations in the coming months and years. And lacking this context, it will be easy to see each component as something isolated and independent from all of the others. Facebook is being criticized because they were being abusive with the data they collected. Google is having trouble with showing conspiracy theory videos to children on YouTube. Far-right authoritarian candidates are bringing out far higher voter numbers than their opponents in a large number of currently, at least, democracies around the world. And some governments, most specifically China and India, though in different ways and to different ends, are tracking their citizenry, using that data for a variety of purposes. All of these stories are connected, and the red thread that weaves through so much of what's happening in the world today is this interconnectedness of humanity and the way existing structures, government, social, and economic, are slamming into these new structures which often invert expectations and demolish most or all of our prediction models. As these new rules come into effect, 
we will see how this current dynamic changes, if it changes. What many people on both sides, the old and new models of organizing and operating, are hoping for, I think, is something that allows us to utilize the best of both worlds. Some of the stability and predictability of existing, well-worn systems that have served us for decades, but with some of the dynamism and innovative capacity and sexy new powers offered up by social networks and big data and other disruptive technologies of that sort. Many of these desires, like predictability and innovation, directly conflict. Others don't, but could be hamstrung by the aspects of these systems that do. Right now, it is very difficult to tell how things will play out, and who will claim the lion's share of the spoils. We don't know how stringently these laws will be enforced, if they'll survive for more than a few rounds of political musical chairs, if their guidelines will be implemented to the spirit of the law or just to the letter of the law, and what kind of backlash we will see if the most valuable utilities of some of these apps and services are crippled or completely disappear as a result of this legislation. We may see a shattering of companies into highly localized variants where Facebook in one country operates completely differently from Facebook in another country, with those in the more lightly legislated regions having access to more and different services, but those in regions covered by GDPR-like laws maintaining more ownership over their data and privacy by default. We may also see competitors to today's tech behemoths popping up, utilizing new business models that don't currently make a lot of sense, but which will, or could, under these new laws. How many people would pay a dollar a month to use an ad-free, manipulation-free, privacy-focused version of Facebook? We don't really know. Or at least we don't know in a situation in which Facebook and its current mode of operation is placed at a significant disadvantage by the state. That could turn the tides in a direction that they have yet to turn in the past, when business models like that dollar-a-month business model have been easily outpaced by the well-funded, well-entrenched incumbents. So something like the GDPR could make these alternative, smaller, upstart businesses actually competitive with these well-entrenched incumbents. As I mentioned before, I suspect we will also see some political careers being made in the coming months following the late May 2018 rollout of the GDPR. This will depend on how much of a stomach these governments have to enforce these laws, but those who choose to come down hard on the increasingly hated or at least distrusted tech giants will likely experience a surge of approval and enthusiasm from their base, which could lead to more of the same elsewhere, even in places that are not currently banging the drum for increased data privacy. I also suspect we will see efforts by other sectors to capitalize on this shakeup. The internet service providers here in the United States, for instance, are already trying to capitalize on the troubles that Silicon Valley is experiencing right now. ISPs are a backbone service that itself is one of the most hated sectors of the economy in the United States. These are private companies that are very often terrible and abusive to their customers, and they charge exorbitant prices for very shoddy service, and which generally also have de facto monopolies in their regions. And they are supported, and supported in maintaining those monopolies, in part, by their generous funding of local politicians with whom they enthusiastically lobby. 
Now, ISPs will not be the only industry hopping on this particular bandwagon, I suspect. We will probably see more of these traditional tech companies in particular joining in on the fun and being able to create a villain out of someone else for a while. We've seen a little bit of this already from traditional TV stations as well and other traditional media organizations, but I feel like there's a lot to be gained here, particularly in terms of short-term PR and political goodwill for anyone who is willing to come down against the current villain of the moment, these tech companies. There will almost certainly be more outrages and shocking revelations as well. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see more leaks, more people who have worked for these companies coming forward to share the cafeteria gossip, along with information about legitimately disturbing happenings within these companies, whether they're social or geopolitical in nature. We will also, on a more direct personal level, see at least a small pivot away from today's reality, where every single entity in our modern digital lives is constantly angling for more information about us which is kind of a weird thing to imagine, and it's difficult to guess how some of these apps and services and companies will survive and thrive, lacking this data that they can turn around and sell about us. But again, this will likely serve as an opportunity for some new entrants, even as it's a threat to these existing companies. The pendulum may swing back toward the status quo before too many of these barbarians at the gate with their new business models get a toehold, But I'm hoping, at the bare minimum, we will see some innovative ideas and an outline of how the connected world could reorient itself around individual data ownership rather than corporate and governmental data ownership. It's hard to say if it would work, and it's hard to say how that sort of world might compare to today's world, but it is a direction worth considering, and I would love to see some examples of that. And that's maybe the most vital issue here. The GDPR is in large part about who owns whose data. And right now, the understanding is that if you can scoop it up, it's yours to do with whatever you like, which mostly means profiting from it and hoarding it like an asset. Online privacy is part of that, but this rearrangement could result in something more broad and sovereign in the sense that any data collected about you would be owned by you. And that means you could take it away from those who have collected it, and they wouldn't be able to use it for anything, including selling it, until you tell them that they can. Maybe they would have to pay you for the right if the data market swings in that direction. And at the very least, they would need to be very explicit about what you are giving up and how they intend to use it and what you are getting in exchange, which by itself seems like a step in the right direction for almost everyone except these corporations. Now, this may also mean more responsibility is placed on each and every one of us. The responsibility to manage our data in the same way that we have to manage our finances, our health, and other things of that nature, which might seem like a scary proposition. I mean, statistically, a lot of us are not great at managing one or more of these things already when it's up to us to manage them. So there's a chance that someone more responsible, a government entity, or even a seemingly beneficent corporation, could step in and manage our data for us. They could offer that as a service and then utilize that same data as their payment for providing it for us. Now, if that sounds like a familiar arrangement, you're not wrong. It's very similar to how things operate today, though it's still, arguably, a move in a positive direction because we would decide whether or not to hire these services and would have ultimate authority over how our data is used, 
even if the relationship then, in practice, evolves into something that looks very much like it is today, otherwise. So what happens next is we watch and wait and try our best to keep the big picture and all of those interconnections in mind, even as different sides present self-serving arguments to us daily, all of which potentially make sense in a very limited way, but which become far less black and white when placed back into that broader context. This is an important thing to do in general, but it's especially vital in situations like this, where the practical reality on the ground is moving fast, and the potential ramifications of any decision, any move that is made within this space, could have massive and multifaceted implications for everything that we do for a very, very long time. The book that I'd like to recommend today is kind of a different genre than I typically read in that to me is always exciting. I enjoy learning about different fields, different writing styles, things like that. But this is a writing book, and specifically it's about writing song lyrics. And it's entitled Writing Better Lyrics by Pat Pattison. And as a background for why I picked this up, I've never really taken writing courses. In school, I feel like I took a couple of entry-level poetry courses way back in the day, and I definitely took some journalism writing courses. But other than that, particularly creative writing courses, was not something I ever really delved into. Any capabilities I have has developed very much as a trial and error thing. And when you develop things in the field trial and error, there's always going to be elements that you're missing. And right now, at the moment, I've been spending a lot of time writing and producing music, just as kind of a fun thing on the side. But I realized there were a whole lot of gaps in my knowledge about this subject. So I looked around, looked for the best advice I could find on on writing lyrically as a separate craft from other types of writing, and it very much is a separate craft. And I found this book, and it's filled with dozens of exercises, but importantly, for me at least, a whole lot of examples of structure and of pulling apart existing songs and riffing on them, changing them around, showing the entire process beginning to end, and what people who actually know what they're doing when it comes to writing songs, what they look for and how they can pick apart their own songs and cut them up and measure them and figure out multiple different ways to change them to perhaps make them more interesting or compelling or on topic. So if anything about that sounds even vaguely interesting to you, if you've ever been interested in writing music, what goes into writing your favorite songs, I would say if you're a writer of any kind, actually, there's a lot you could take away from this book. And if you're looking to better understand the structure that underlies a whole lot of creative production of any kind, this seems like a book that is worth picking up. Again, the title is Writing Better Lyrics, and the author is Pat Pattison. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode of the podcast and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com, and you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.